the challenge is, so, so people often say, Alex, Alex, don't talk about failure. Talk about learning. Well, <laughs> then you stigmatize failure even more. So failure is never the goal. Nobody wants to fail. But failure is an inevitable side consequence of innovation. It's the flip side of, you know, you, you just can't innovate without having a lot of failure. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning again from Alex Osterwilder. I heard Alex recently on Aidan McCullen's The Innovation Show and thought I would get him back on. And I was keen to get him on to talk about a new way he's thinking about how to manage the metrics around innovation. And we got to it just at the end, but not with huge amount of time. So this is his concept is aspirations and key insights as opposed to objectives and key results. And we get there in the end, but we have a fantastic conversation thinking about how much investment you need to put into innovation as a mature business and how you take the one in 250 success rate that venture capital has. How do we turn that into something that looks much more manageable inside a business? How do we give people time, structure? How do we find the people with innovation? How do we make sure that the metrics and return on investment are right? What org structure might look like? And I think Alex and I were talking before we were recording. And I think if you know what he said to me, which will be the title for this episode, if you know it's going to work, it's not innovation. And we talk about this concept of kill rate. He reckons probably nine out of 10, definitely seven out of 10 projects that you start inside your business need to be killed. So that at the end of 12 months, maybe only one in 10 of the innovation projects that you start is still has legs. But you're going to need to build a portfolio of maybe 50 projects that are live at any one time to get enough innovation going in your business to make material change, to get a return on your investment. And so daunting prospect and very different to what I see in most of the clients that we work with. I think most clients have the, um, we're going to invest some money in innovation, pick one project and back it. And as Alex said, in his experience working with many more clients than I have, what that does is that then becomes a lighthouse project and nobody is prepared to take the failure, write down the asset, if you like, the time and money invested in it, or even the emotional currency and the status that people have invested in a lighthouse project. So it just keeps running. And his phrase for this is zombie projects. So as ever, great high energy conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. My name is Alex Osterwalder. I'm the inventor of the business model canvas and founder of Strategizer. And what does Strategizer do? Strategizer helps 
established companies around the world build innovation engines. And at the same time, we create tools that are for every business person on the planet, from startup to the most senior leaders in, in the largest companies of the planet. It's interesting because I, I, as you said that, I was it's not that I'm surprised. It just it struck me again that that what you do is you help establish companies because you're you know, that, that business model canvas, you know, Steve Blank, Larry Reese. And then when I talk to Steve, he goes, Alex is brilliant because he created the UX for the, the front end to make the whole thing accessible. And that it's a startup tool. And yet you say, look, we work with established businesses. And why, is, why don't you work with startups? <laughs> so two things that the tool, if we take that's one of our tools, right? One of our conceptual tools, strategic management tools, it does. One thing, and it does it really well, it describes a company's business model or a person's idea of what they want to build a company around. So that's, you know, for startups, you start a company, you have an idea of a business model, you're looking for it, you're searching for it. If you're an established company, you have a business model. So even governments have business models, right? So it's the same thing as a tool. Now, as a company, we work with established businesses because you know, this, it's more lucrative. That's our starting point. Our vision is to start from the top, a little bit like, you know, Tesla started with expensive cars and then they go downwards. So, you know, as a business, we start with, you know, acquiring big customers. And then ultimately we're going to democratize the tools in our strategizer platform for small, medium-sized companies and startups. So that's the way forward because the tools are for everybody, for every single business person. But the most lucrative market where we can actually start building a business model is large companies. Would I love to start with startups? Yeah, but there's no market there. So startups are trying to find a business model. How are they going to pay another firm, you know, for, for this stuff? Not possible. There's no market in startups. And what's, what's your favorite success tale where an established business you've worked with has applied your toolbox and seen, you know, amazing success? So one of my favorite stories is actually not large a large company, one of my favorite stories is how Owlet, you know, as a, as a student project, they, they participated in the international business model competition. And Steve Blank and I were judges in the, that was the 2013 edition. And they showed not, you know, like in a business plan competition, their idea and how brilliant it was. They showed the journey of testing and iterating their idea and turning it into value propositions and a business model that could work. And today, this is a company that, you know, is publicly listed over a billion dollar worth and is a really nice journey of how they systematically de-risked their idea, ad actually adapted their idea, and that really worked out. And of course, you know, it's not just the tools in the process. It was a brilliant management team as well. Tools are just tools. <laughs> you know, you still need really, really good people to use those tools well. And do you have a ideal team makeup when you say great management team? Because I was with a client yesterday in Stuttgart and, you know, we were talking, we were using a tool called Working Genius to look at the way in which people might think about execution or strategy from the table group. And, you know, some people have ideas, they'll generate a thousand ideas. Some people are fantastic at execution. What, do you have a sense of team size, team makeup that you think if you give a type of team that works and a type of team that doesn't work? Yeah. So when you start, and that's the same for a startup or an innovation team, a corporate venture team, when you start, the team should be very small. You know, I think one or two people, maximum three is actually the ideal size. And when we're talking innovation in a company, I wouldn't even go with hundred percent at the beginning in a startup, probably more. Yes. 
And what you need is a diverse group of people. I think creativity is overweighted. You actually don't need a lot of creative people. You need people who, if you want, the driver is the entrepreneur, entrepreneur, is somebody who can see patterns in the data that others can't. They can look at, you know, and, and, and find that opportunity. Oh, this is something people really seem to be struggling with. And what if, you know, we created that kind of value proposition with this kind of revenue stream? That's the number one <laughs> that you need, people who can see something others can't. But then, you know, for any innovator or entrepreneur, what is really, really important, and that quality could be in the same person or somebody else in the team, is you need to be relentless. <laughs> and you, know, you can't get tired. You have to overcome every single obstacle. So it's, it's this idea that you just don't give up for a very long time until you can anymore because you ran out of money. And in corporations, sometimes you should cut the money because we have all these zombie projects. But that team, you know, with these mixed skills, rarely in one person, more in two or three, is extremely important. And really the, the executor, not in the sense of executing a plan, but keeping people on track to not get distracted because focus is everything in entrepreneurship and innovation because there's so much you could do, but you have to go towards something that can work, right? Well, and I also focus on, you know, if you're doing it off the side of your desk and it gets hard, the day job will just take up all your time again. Because look, it's like sales. You know, you give people, oh, we could sell to existing customers or new customers. Don't do that. They'll just do the existing thing because that's easy, not the hard thing. So you, that focus on overcoming the obstacles. I've got some questions. And when you say zombie projects, so there's an organizational structural thing here because I see actually the inability to kill being one of the things that ultimately kills the whole innovation journey. Because it's like, oh, we started 10 projects. Well, where are they now? Well, they're still running. Well, when will they finish? I've no idea. When I speak at a conference, I ask, you know, how many of you, I talk about zombie projects, and I say, how many of you have projects in innovation that you know should be killed? And every hand goes up, at least, you know, 60, 70%. So why is it? It's not because these are not smart people, but it's because, number one, we don't want to show failure, so we keep on going. Number two, we believe, oh, we're going to pivot ourselves to success. So as we just search long enough, you know, we're ultimately going to get there. And number three, the metrics are broken, you know, to really kill these projects. This is something we can do today based on very clear metrics. And those metrics just don't exist in the innovation space today. So many projects still get funding because we don't really know when do we let them live and when do we let them die. But this should not be the case because we now know how to evaluate innovation projects and when do we let them live and when do we kill them. So we need to, we, we've actually in some companies, one of the big pharma companies, we introduced a kill rate. And killing sounds brutal, right? So our friend at, at Bosch, Uwe Kirchner, he likes to say, successfully retire. So you need to retire nine out of 10 projects because only one is probably going to succeed. And you need to do that in a, in a structured kind of, you know, way with the process. I, I think kill rate's better, but that's just me. So with a pharma company, is the kill rate nine out of 10 as well? So what's interesting is actually in the pharmaceutical industry, when it comes to finding molecules, they have that, right? So there's so many researchers and scientists, they're never going to find anything in their whole career they have that kill rate. So projects get killed and projects get killed and one molecule comes out of a lot of research. But when it comes to business R&D, 
So trying to find new value propositions and business models, they do not have this kill rate yet. So we're introducing that, you know, when we work with companies, because when we see zombie projects, we say, this is bad resource allocation. With the same amount of money we have in innovation in many companies, we could do a better job if we killed those projects that should be killed. And because we don't really have the right metrics in place, we don't really know when to kill and when not to kill. So we don't want to make people look bad or people don't want to look bad and they find sources somewhere else to keep on going. Well, you know, that whole people don't want to recognize failure. I used to find the term fail faster really difficult because I just I, I thought, well, who wants to fail? But actually, from an innovation perspective, it's not the failure. It's that we learned that this didn't work and that that's actually a positive result. That's the switch that you need to flick in your head. I know. And, and my friend Marshall Goldsmith always, you know, gets, gets people to pay $100 on the table when they say, but. Yes, but. So I deliberately said it loud and proud. The challenge is, so, so people often say, Alex, Alex, don't talk about failure. Talk about learning. Well, <laughs> then you stigmatize failure even more. So failure is never the goal. Nobody wants to fail. But failure is an inevitable side consequence of innovation. It's the flip side of, you know, you, you just can't innovate without having a lot of failure. It's not the goal, but in innovation, what do you do? You do a lot of things, you experiment, and the success will emerge. So you will let 10 teams run, and the best teams and ideas will emerge. In innovation, you don't pick ideas. The best ideas and teams emerge. So you need to accept there will be failure. You need to actually encourage, not failure, you encourage being bold bold exploration with the right process so we can manage resource allocation in the way that failure is not expensive. And that's why we say fail fast. But the thing is, this is not, everybody now accepts you need to fail and failure is a good thing in innovation. It's going to happen. But the processes haven't changed. So what people acknowledge, yeah, it's part of innovation. They haven't changed the processes and the culture well enough to actually embrace that aspect of innovation, that you will fail and you will fail a lot. Only few companies really have that in the DNA of their company. So that sort of, you'll set 10 teams off. Those teams are sort of one to three people. Okay, so we do that. What are some of these milestones and metrics that we put in place? Is it, we give them, we give them some money and when they run out, if they can't come back and pitch for more, it's dead? Or, you know, what, what hurdles do we put in their way? Excellent question. At the beginning, you, you don't even need money. So you'll say, yeah, but I need money to build an MVP. Don't build anything in, in your first sprint. We call this a discovery sprint. Your only task in the first sprint with a small team is to invest time to figure out the customer's jobs, pains, and gains. And you can do that with very cheap experiments that require very little money, mainly your time. And then you ask the teams, if you have 10 teams, usually you go up to 100 teams or so, you give them maybe three months, maybe less, and you ask them to come back with evidence for jobs, pains, and gains that exist. So there's something, sometimes people like to say problem to solve. I don't like problem because sometimes people have ambitions. You can help that. Or it might be an unmet need. So they don't, the customer doesn't perceive it as a problem at all. There you go. And you ask them to come back with evidence. So it's very explicit. What type of evidence do you want them to come back with after three months? If they don't have any evidence, project is dead. And you have to have a very good reason to extend. For example, you know, you went for two months, you pivoted at the very end, and all of a sudden, 
just before kind of the project deadline for this first sprint ends, you've figured out something really interesting and you have your first slight evidence. Then you can ask, you say, okay, we pivoted at the end. We like, we went back to zero. We didn't have anything, but we're actually onto something interesting. And then leadership can say, okay, let's extend that a bit so they can come back with more evidence. But the, the most important is expectations management. Teams need to know what to show after three months, not a PowerPoint deck, not an Excel spreadsheet, but evidence. So you make the evidence shine, not the idea, the evidence that supports your idea. Okay, give me an example. So you've talked to 100 potential customers and 80 said, I'm struggling with this every day and I have the money, but there is no solution. I have a budget, there's no solution. If 80 out of 100 said that, well, okay, then you need to go a little bit deeper. Now you're going to make some experiments where it's not just about them saying more skin in the game. For example, they can sign a letter of intent if you're in business to business, they can make a down payment. So you need to get stronger evidence. We talk about light evidence, people said, and strong evidence, call to action. They did something where there's more skin in the game. This is what we use in our innovation metrics, stronger and stronger evidence over the time of the exploration of the idea. So interviews is not enough. It's a great start, not enough. And so teams that drop out of the race, projects we kill, they have to come up with something else. They can go again or go back to their day job, whatever. Exactly. And ideally, you actually want them to come back in the future because here's the thing. Innovation and entrepreneurship is a profession and you get better at it over time. And it's very different from, from the management business. And so if you do this the first time, you're pretty bad. <laughs> If you do it the third or the fourth time, you're starting to figure it out. So that's the challenge. If you, you know, scare them away because they failed and then they never want to come back. Well, you just, you know, got them to start and you got them to kindergarten, but you didn't get them to graduate from university. So you want them to come back because it's the third or fourth time that they're really good at it. And so where does that end up? What's the chances of you, of we started 10 teams, some of them will still be going. And are these, are you, do you think of this in terms of 90-day or quarterly sprints? You're just sort of putting in delivery milestones every quarter? So it depends very much on the type of industry you're in, the arena. But we think, so what we've seen from the past is three months is a great initial sprint to really get customer evidence. And then you actually kill, since you like the term kill, or you successfully retire, at least 50% of the projects, ideally even 70%. So you only allow 30% to get to the next level. And generally, there are 30% who will find really convincing evidence. And then you give those three teams out of 10, you give them maybe six months, and then they can, you know, with some money, build maybe a minimal viable product or do some more expensive experiments and get stronger evidence. After six months, you reduce the three teams to one. So the, the best team and idea bubbles up. And that's what we call a portfolio. It's like a venture capital, you know, from seed stage to, you know, a series A, B. You do that inside the company and you do it really fast. And then do you keep it inside the company or do you build it up as a separate thing? That's a, is an excellent question. I see lots of companies with very strong immune systems. Yes. So if it's too far out, then you have the corporate antibodies that are going to kill any idea. It's not going to work. So what you really need is something that is outside more in a cultural sense that the processes, the KPIs, the culture is different and it's very clear how to explore. And, but, you know, if you're, let's say you're here, you're working on a new product that's going to live in the same business model, same business unit and P&L, 
there needs to be a strong engagement of the leaders from that profit and loss statement, from that business unit, because if they're not, <laughs> they're going to kill the thing. So that's how you kind of keep the integration between the core and the innovation. Now, if we're talking business model innovation, then it needs to be very separate and the CEO needs to give, you know, new business models legitimacy and create new P&Ls. We see tons of companies that explore ideas, have wonderful evidence, and then they don't scale it because it doesn't neatly fit into somebody's P&L. Even worse, sometimes it cannibalizes somebody's P&L. So you need to have the Amazon mindset where you're willing to create a completely new arena, P&L around Amazon Web Services. Everybody said, no, no, Amazon, you're a retailer. Don't do this. Well, it turns out it's now the most profitable part of their, of their business. That's long-term thinking, creating new business units, new P&Ls that have a lot of potential, but still, you know, somehow integrate with the core. So it's not like the conglomerates like GE from the past is more integrated kind of new type of conglomerate where the business model is the unit of analysis. If you, if you study Amazon, it's a conglomerate, but it really fits all together because there's synergies between the different businesses. So it's really interesting to watch. And very few companies can pull this off. Before we were talking, and I, and I think it probably will be the title to this episode, if you know it's going to succeed, it's not innovation. And, and I was thinking about some of the clients that I work with, you know, and they sort of say, this idea has to generate $10 million, right? Otherwise it, otherwise, it won't move the needle for us. And so they're searching for the project to back. And it's just painful. But at the same time, there is this difference between linear and exponential. And at the beginning, they look very similar. Sort of counterintuitive to start 10 and kill one, but what are the chances of success, right? So if you're, if you're a company, you know, you could look at venture capital and think, well, how often do they, they do this for a living. We're doing, we're, we're starting on this innovation thing. What would my success rate have to be to, if I build a portfolio? So, so some really simple rules of thumb, right? So and it's, it's very similar to venture capital. I actually think that in companies, the success rate should be a lot higher, not because we're smarter in picking, but because we have a lot more assets, right? We can work with our brand, we have customers, we have intellectual property, but we still need to be, build the same system like in, 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 in venture capital. And I'm not talking corporate venture capital. So here's the thing. So when you, what you said is a legitimate request that leaders say, I need, you know, 10 million, 100 million, or a billion for this to move the needle. But here's the thing, they frame it the wrong way. They say, I need this project to create, you know, 10 million or 100 million new revenues. What they need to say is, I need to build a portfolio where the likelihood of a $10 million business or $100 million business or billion dollar business emerging is very high. So you invest in a portfolio not in a project. And here's the big, 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 big thing that leaders get immediately when you explain it. In exploit, running your business, you invest in projects. You think a lot, you invest, build a new factory, supply chain, you expand, it's predictable. In innovation, it's not predictable because uncertainty is high. So you diversify your risk, you invest in several projects. Now, the, the detail here is, the bigger the return you want and the more radical the innovation, the broader the funnel needs to be. You cannot expect a billion dollar return if you invest in 10 projects. 
very unlikely. It's possible if we're talking about incremental innovation, you know, we already have enough knowledge. If you're trying new business models, it will be, you know, like the statistics say, one out of 250. So the, the best companies today, they invest in over 200 projects, not in 10, but over 200 because they know the success rate is, if you're very good, the success rate is 10%. One out of 10. That's, that's if you're really, really good, right? So you have to invest. The, more, the bigger the return should be, the broader your portfolio should be. So you, you calculate return on portfolio, not return on projects. That's the difference from innovation, exploration, and execution and management. In management, you, you, you look at return on project when you calculate return on investment. In innovation, you can't pick the winner. So you can't recalculate return on project. You calculate return on portfolio because you're going to put your, your, your money into a broad basket and that's what's going to generate the ideas and teams that will win. You let the teams and ideas emerge. You don't pick them. So if I, so what's my calculation? If I'm a VC and one in 250 is going to work and the outlier is going to give me a 50x return on capital, so the fund is going to do okay and my LPs are going to give me more money. But what, if one in 250 is a VC, what is it internally? What should I be thinking of my success rate to be? So what we've seen so far is that generally you get something, and again, it depends. There, there are two big variables. One is, are we talking about incremental innovation? Are we talking about more transformative business model innovation? That will change the ratio. So you are much more likely to succeed in incremental innovation, your new product features, maybe sustaining innovation, new products, new business models. It's much less guaranteed. That's number one. Number two is the size of your winning project and idea. If you want to create a multi-billion dollar business, you're going to have to invest in many. Because look, we looked at the data from venture capital. It's 50x return on capital. We're not talking revenues. In companies, it's not about the valuation of your internal project. It's actually the revenue generated. So, so it might be a bit broader. But what we see, so from the anecdotal data, we just don't have a large data set yet, but from the companies we work with, we generally see one out of 10 is a good rule of thumb. That's why we say invest in 10 and you get one, but then the size depends a bit. Now, again, a couple of variables, but we did one study with one of the pharma clients that we have, and we got a 10x return on capital. So they invested in their portfolio and they got a 10x return on that investment. And that is a very kind of specific thing where they were looking at new ways to access the market so they could calculate over the next 10 years, you know, what the return would be from the winners that they generate. So you today can start to estimate, it's never guaranteed, but you can start to estimate. But what's very clear, you'll always get a return on portfolio and we can almost guarantee, my team likes to say, Alex, you can't guarantee anything, but you can get pretty close to saying, well, you know, somewhere between a 5x to 10x return can be guaranteed if your funnel is large enough. If you do three projects, harder. If you do somewhere between 50 and 200 projects, it's extremely likely that you're going to get the big winners to emerge because there's no challenge of ideas and talent in companies. It's a process challenge. It's, it's a culture challenge. You know, any company that has more than 1,000 people has the innovation talent. 
they probably seen the opportunities in the market. What they don't have, it's not a question of talent, what they don't have is the system to let the innovators in the company thrive. So we today, we kill the innovators. We get them to become managers, though they would love to be entrepreneurs. But they're not bold enough to become entrepreneurs outside in the wild, because that's a completely different world. But we don't have a system today to let the entrepreneurial talent inside companies thrive and grow. But that's changing, right? And Amazon is a great example. You know, their ideas come from inside. It's not through acquisitions that they created some of the best stuff. It's through the innovation talent within because that talent can thrive very hard at most established big corporations. So if I was coming up with a, what do you say, 50 to 250, you've got to kick something off with that to, to end up with a portfolio. So if I wanted to kick off 50 projects, so I end up with a portfolio, what's that going to cost me? Because there must be a sort of a minimum viable building this pipeline. Yeah, it's it. I wouldn't give a general number because it's very industry dependent. I don't like using the term industry, but, you know, in software, you know, building MVPs, minimal viable products is going to be a lot cheaper and faster because you need a couple of coders that can build something fast. If you're GE, you're, you're building jet engines, you know, well, MVP is already kind of a tricky concept, but the investments are going to be much larger for kind of the second phase. So rule of thumb for the Initial testing, and this is before scaling, because in scaling, it's going to become very different in different industries. A rule of thumb, investment, for your first sprint, I would say put together a team of three people, 20 to 40% of their time, so you're only going to have salary cost. You know, somewhere between 50 and 100K for their salaries, that's it. It's time. It's not even additional capital. Now, it does cost, right? So that fits with sort of 3M or Google, you know, that half a day, day a month, day a week, sorry, half a day. It's like, if you feel like you have innovators DNA, you can, you know, here's a scheme that where we give you the opportunity to do this. Now we have to create a platform so that we think people are doing something useful with their Friday mornings. And, and that's the thing. And I, I like that you brought up Google and 3M. So it's not enough to give people time. You need to give them what you just said, the system to use that time in the right way and to judge those ideas in the right way. So Google today is probably one of the biggest bureaucracies in the world. Like they're, they're a bit slower than they used to be. I mean, still a brilliant company, but it's getting a little bit difficult to really innovate and time is not going to be enough. 3M has that principle and they've been extremely good at product innovation, scientific innovation, but they've never been really good at business model innovation. So I have people from 3M telling me, Alex, this is great, your stuff, because really good at coming up with new technologies, new materials and new products. But what we're not good at is actually new value propositions and business models. So again, the time is not enough, but the time is exactly what you said. I think 20 to 40% of a small team is great. And why is it not 100%? Because it's harder to kill an idea when you have 10 people spending 100% of their time on an idea. Guess what? After three months, that's starting to become a lighthouse project. Nobody wants to kill an idea that, you know, we invested a lot of money in. So the, the cheaper the first phase, the easier it is to kill. So that is extremely important. So one of the reasons, you know, we say that is, we want everybody to be able to start. We don't want to say we pick ideas up front. My conviction is anybody in the company should be able to start, 
but then they have to bring evidence to the table. If after three months they can't show evidence, project kill. And that works extremely well, right? Because you get ideas from everywhere. It's not an idea problem. It's not a talent problem. It's a process and systems problem. I also like the, I can see how some people have, you know, you get this itch that you want to scratch inside a company, right? I feel the company should do a thing. Like customers are always complaining about a thing. And management are obviously complete morons because they haven't fixed this yet. And so just creating this means that those frontline employees can then say, right, let's go see if this is a real thing. And if after three months they say this isn't a thing, it'll stop bothering them. So there's an individual upside to that failure. And they might, that, they might then drop off the project because at that point they've, their ideas picked up enough steam. They go back to the day job. Other people take it on. There's a big thing here, and I'll give you an anecdote that illustrates what you said and also shows some of the challenges that sometimes leadership has. So I was in, giving a talk to, in a, in a wonderful setting, a dinner in a five-star hotel with the executive team of, of a media company. And the CEO you know, said at the end, Alex, this is great. I'm, I, now I understand. I need to infect everybody with the innovation virus. I said, well, let's be a bit careful here. So actually... You don't need to infect anybody with anything. What you really need is to create the system that innovators can be innovators because they're already there. You don't need to infect anybody because the innovators are already in your company. What you need to do is give them a place, and I'm not talking about a physical place, but a legitimate place where they can explore ideas without jeopardizing their career. And if you do that, I can guarantee you it's going to, innovation is going to happen. So the biggest challenge for CEOs is very simple. Tear down the barriers for innovators. You don't need to incentivize them the first two to three years. You don't need to do a lot more than just tear down the barriers, create a little bit of a system and innovation will start and flourish. If you have thousand people, you have innovation talent, guaranteed. Oh, there's at least 50 rock stars in that business, unless they've somehow screened them out. But I, I just, as you were talking, I just, I remember what my corporate jobs were Marks and Spencers and, and Glaxo. And in both organizations, I came up with innovation. And in both cases, I was told that it wasn't my job to think, you know, it's like, you're not in head office. All the smart people are in head office. You're just, you stop, stop doing that thinking and innovating thing. And can you do it the way we've told you to do it? And because then they take it personally, because now you've basically pointed out to them that the thing they thought was true is not true. And they have this belief and they just double down on their belief and stamp on your fingers even harder. And so those people are all there and you're right. And, and so I actually feel that all of those innovators would never want Friday off. They would never want to go to a four day week. If you just said to on a Friday, you can do something else. You can still come to work, but you can do something much more interesting and stimulating than the day job. Be perfect. Yes, but you need to create those systems, right? So you're absolutely right. What's missing is the system that allows those people to legitimately, without career risk, to start exploring ideas. And then you also have a system that will force them. So this is, you know, the the flexibility of the startup world, but the rigor of the corporate world in terms of process, you will ask them to show some evidence after three months. And if they can't show it, the project needs to be killed and they need to move on. So that, that is the piece that we're missing today. Sometimes people say, oh, we're giving the time. Yes, but time without the space 
and the legitimacy is not going to work. And I had Ben Bissau on talking about how he's helped firms put some of those systems in place. And I suppose if you're not, if there's no salary time for people, there is salary time and investment in building that system and managing that system. Yes, huge. So that's really important. So you will have, and we, we, we did talk with my colleague Tendai Vicky on, on a webinar recently about the five jobs in innovation. And what we, you know, really kind of pivoted on over time with experience is the innovation leader you can call them however that you want, the chief innovation officer, chief, we like to call it chief entrepreneur. Their job is actually not that much related to creating the innovation system per se or picking the ideas or managing the portfolios. We realize that that job is a political job. The chief innovation officer needs to constantly align with everybody in the business from the CEO to the leaders of the functions and the leaders of the business units to create the buy-in, the understanding of how the innovation ecosystem works and why we're doing this and why we're doing that. So we call that person the ambassador. So the key job of the innovation leader is the ambassador with the legitimacy and, and support of the CEO to talk to all of the different you know, parts of the business. Because otherwise, you're going to get what you said, ideas that were validated, that have strong evidence, but that can't take off because we don't really know how to you know, integrate them and, and the antibodies of the company are going to, going to show up. So the ambassador job is one that we kind of upgraded. We saw it first as a bridging job that was maybe two levels down from the CEO. Now we say, no, no, the ambassador is the top job in innovation because otherwise innovation is going to die or we're going to churn out ideas that are not going to get to the scale we need to make a difference in an established company. And also one of the things I thought you, I, I think you said earlier, which I liked was that, which has certainly been, if I look at successes and failures I have had, that getting somebody to be emotionally attached to some of this innovation, some of the P&L holders inside the organization seeing some of this innovation as their success rather than as somebody else's success and therefore my failure. Because then otherwise the CEO is constantly defending any resource allocation that they've made to innovation. Because people are saying, you've given them a million pounds, but when will we see a return on this investment? Like if you gave me that million pounds, you'd have already seen that return. And it's like, ah. Excellent observation. So the way we like to frame it is give the business leaders of, you know, the existing business, give them all the upside and take away all the downside, right? So take away stuff that will show up in their P&L because they don't want, you know, if they don't know it's going to work and it's not immediately going to create what you just said, that immediate return, they don't want it to show up as something that's going to punish their appearance, right? So give them the upside of growth and take away by institutionalizing the budget, maybe like in R&D. In R&D, you know, you have a, a very systematic way of making it easy for the company to invest. In business R&D, new value propositions and new business models, we don't have that. And that's because there's still these myths in innovation. People think, oh, innovation, I invest a lot in R&D. R&D is science, it's products, it's technology. And in innovation, it's about creating value for customers with a business model that can scale profitably. So these are two different worlds. Oh, I, I see it all the time. We have a sales problem. Okay, talk me through this. Well, we built this thing and then sales can't sell it. Okay, how did you build that thing? What do you mean? Well, you know, some scientists, whether they be software developers or some sort of engineering function, came up with a thing. We built this thing based on ChatGPT. AI is really hot. 
Sales need to go and sell it to people. Sales come back and go, nobody cares. It's a sales problem. And it's just in, in one of the companies I was in, you know, I realized that there was an inflection point at about five bucks, three and a half, three pounds 50 for a thing, doing some talking to some competitors and went back into the organization. And I said, we need to sell this for, for five bucks. And they went, there's $6 of hard cost in there. And it's like, okay, we're never going to sell that then. It's just, they, you know, they've done a really lovely job. They just created a Rolls Royce and what people wanted was a mini. It was just like the whole thing had just been. The, the, the way to frame that is, so we've, you know, one of the things we've actually faced in our own business, so some of the tools and, and concepts we come up with is from our challenges. So companies often use goal setting, they use OKRs, objectives and key results. And that is actually a very good tool for execution, right? Came from Intel, Google made it popular. And what we realize is innovation projects tend to become execution projects very quickly. So even if we say, well, you know, we don't know if it's going to work, but if we set a goal, oh, we want to sell 500,000, a million, 10 million, 100 million, then all of a sudden it becomes a goal. Just like you said, we're going to give it to the sales and the sales has a quota and then they're going to try to sell and it's going to be a failure, right? But what we really want to do is for innovation stuff, we want to call it AKIs, you know, aspirations and key insights, because if we need to treat it differently, call it differently. So our aspiration is to earn money from that new product, whatever goal, like 5 million, but we don't know if it's going to work. So we need to not produce results. We need to produce key insights to understand, do we kill that, you know, product? Do we iterate that product? Do we actually scale that product? So you get a lot more focused on a different process and you accept this might not work. So we have a goal, but we call it an aspiration because we know, and it's not stretch goals, right? This is like, we really don't know if it's going to work. And if you call them differently, OKRs for managing, AKIs for innovation, you actually separated mentally. You can live in the same space, but mentally you separated these two projects. Has been a huge difference for us because we faced that. Everything became an execution project. All of a sudden, people said, we need to get it over the line. No, we need to know if we kill it or if we go on. I think that, you know what? It feels like we could come back and do an entire new episode on AKI. So we'll do that at some point in the future. Alex, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? <laughs> the, the biggest thing is, you know, today, I think I'm getting better as a CEO. I didn't know, you know, how to be as a CEO, how to behave and what to do as an entrepreneur and CEO. And if I had had a coach, like a breakthrough coach <laughs> earlier in my career, I would have, you know, gone a lot faster. So the one thing I'd recommend anybody at the beginning of their career, get a breakthrough coach. And it's not just, oh, I'm going to solve a business problem. No, a breakthrough coach helps you get better <laughs> every day with how you approach life, how you approach you know, personal challenges, business challenges, how you communicate. Every single aspect of who you are has an impact on how you lead. And if I had done that earlier, I would have been a better person and a better CEO. So I think just getting a breakthrough coach early on in your career is going to make a phenomenal difference. That's brilliant. I was, I was chatting to an entrepreneur a couple of weeks ago and he said, what type of coach are you? So I was having this conversation about, and he said, so he said, you don't teach entrepreneurs to be more organized. I said, no, entrepreneurs need to learn to hire people who are organized so they can do the visioning thing that they're world-class at. I said, I meet so many entrepreneurial leaders who their business gets to the point 
where they no longer enjoy any aspect of the job that they're doing because they've become a CEO. And in their minds, it's that difference between OKRs and AKIs. They love looking for those aspirations and key insights. And in fact, their job has turned into an execution job, which they are mostly shit at and hate. And they just didn't, and they, and they didn't realize that they could be a CEO and not do that stuff. Yes. The interesting thing is, so building on what you just said, if you look at some of the world's best entrepreneurs, they were able to bridge that gap, build a team around them. And for some, it took time. And so we always, you know, cite Steve Jobs. Well, Steve Jobs, the, the, the early Steve Jobs was fired from his own company. The Steve Jobs who came back was way more mature and was able to create an execution machine and an innovation machine, an exploration machine at the same time because he matured as a person and did exactly what you said, right? Able to understand is not all about chaos. I need organization as well. And, you know, with Tim Cook, built that organization. So I think the best can do both or at the very least hire a team that, you know, prevent them from keeping the chaos going <laughs> and then going bankrupt ultimately. Brilliant. And what, other than any of your amazing books, what have you been reading recently? Where, where should people look for inspiration in this innovation space? So maybe not innovation space directly, but there's a, there's a book I really enjoyed was the, the Courage to be Disliked. And yeah, it's, it's an incredibly interesting book. It's all about, you know, how you make decisions in life and, and, and in business and, and how you let others, you know, do their thing. So it's been a big revelation for me. I read it over New Year and I can only encourage people to read that book. I had Eric Marcel on the podcast recently and, and he coaches painters and writers. He coaches creatives. And he said one of the impacts he thinks he has is he coaches people to be smart in a not smart world. And, and it feels like that courage to be disliked is is going to be from a similar perspective. Alex, as ever, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.